Hello everyone, it's Andrew. We're gonna have a proper introduction, including a strategy segment, including Nate Mavis. We've got Nate Mavis for the strategy segment, which is a special treat, but I do have some news to share with you first. We'll start with the good news. Uh, Play Optimal Poker 2 is almost here. Been working on it for almost a year now. Started uh, basically immediately after the World Series of Poker 2019 and uh, it's here. I'm aiming to release it next Monday, May 25th. It's all but finished. Uh, So I want to give you a couple of tips for optimizing your Play Optimal Poker experience. First and most importantly, there's going to be an exclusive discount for newsletter subscribers. When the book is out, this is going to be the place to get your discount. Make sure you sign up now at thinkingpoker.net slash newsletter thinkingpoker.net slash newsletter. This is a sequel. You are going to get a lot more out of Play Optimal Poker 2 if you have read Play Optimal Poker 1. So if you don't already have Play Optimal Poker, now is the time to pick it up. It is on sale, $5 off at Amazon or knitcast.com. Amazon is the place to go for a paper book. Knitcast.com, N-I-T-C-A-S-T.com is the place to go if you want a, uh, an ebook. So at Knitcast, you'll get a variety of ebook formats. You'll get PDF, you'll get EPUB, which is uh, viewable on any e-reader, and you'll get a version that you can read on Kindle. Uh, Amazon, you can get, of course, the Kindle version or the paper version. Uh, also, you should join the Facebook group. This is facebook.com slash groups slash playoptimalpoker, or just search for Play Optimal Poker on Facebook and you'll find us. Uh, there are people in there right now discussing the first book. I am one of those people. Uh, people are posting hands, giving feedback on other people's hands. Uh, I'm there answering questions people have about the book. Um, I respond to most posts that are made there myself. So if you have questions about the content of the book, that's a great place to go and get answers. If you're reading or reading, reading in preparation for Play Optimal Poker 2, and there's concepts that uh, you want my feedback on, that is the place to get it. And of course, once Play Optimal Poker 2 is out, there will be a lot of folks in there reading and discussing that book, and I will be there to help you make the most of it. So sign up for thinkingpoker.net slash newsletter, and also facebook.com slash groups slash playoptimalpoker. Uh, If you haven't read Play Optimal Poker yet, go take advantage of that sale. More good news. Our guest today is Matt Glassman, longtime friend of the show. He first appeared on episode 191. Matt is a political scientist and a serious card player. Plays poker, plays bridge, plays other card games. Uh, He's a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Government Affairs Institute. And what I love about Matt is uh, he's he's a technical guy. Like when it when it comes to politics, he understands how government 
works. And honestly, he, I mean, he thinks about it in game theoretical terms. He thinks about it like a card player. Uh, so when we talk politics with Matt, it's not uh, Democrat versus Republican or, or anything along those lines. Like when we talk politics with Matt, it's about the incentives of various political actors uh, and the tools that they have available to them. And Matt is great at explaining you know, what's going on behind the scenes, why you see people um, making certain things or you know, saying or, or, or doing certain things. And uh, I, I think he's just great at cutting through uh, the, the kind of BS that swirls around most media and political media today. Um, I think he's just extremely good at explaining things in terms that are, are enlightening and refreshing. Uh, I just think it, it's rare that you get this, uh, this this kind of analysis. There's not a ton of that talk on, on this episode, but to hear the world of politics explained through uh, the, the lens of someone who understands poker and, and card playing and, and strategy in that way, I think is, uh, is really interesting. And Matt has proved very popular with our audience. So if you don't know Matt already, uh, you're in for a treat, but certainly also go check out episode 191 and some of his other appearances. Um, the only bit of bad news, we recorded this interview over Skype as we usually do. Uh, the connection with Matt got bad at some point. Um, his audio is a little garbled. We cleaned it up as best we could. We cut out what had to be cut out, and eventually he switched to cell phone, which uh, you'll hear at the end of the call. He's on the cell phone and not on Skype. Uh, apologize for that. I wish we had uh, audio that were fully up to the quality of the content. I hope that you will enjoy anyway. Uh, so now we're going to have Nate and I doing a full strategy segment, followed by our interview with Matt Glassman. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to episode 325 of the Thinking Poker podcast from Melrose, Massachusetts. I'm Nate Mavis and with me from Owings Mills, Mills, Maryland. Owings Mills, Maryland. It's literally gone nowhere in the last few weeks. Yeah, from from a very definite location (laughs) in Owings Mills, Maryland. Andrew Brogus, how are you, Andrew? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Wonderful. Life is good. You know, hanging in there, uh, sending best wishes to everybody who is listening to this and all of their loved ones. And, uh, you know, crossing my fingers and hoping for the best and uh, reading a lot of Mo Willems books to my son. (laughs) I feel like 325 is kind of a milestone. I feel anything that's a multiple of 25 feels like a a milestone to me. Sure, sure, sure. It's kind of half a year, if nothing else. Yeah, three two, half, yeah, half a year's I, worth of shows. No, it's 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 a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, no, happy happy three hundred twenty five. Happy uh, what five squared times thirteen? That's it's <laughs> a nice nice tidy prime factorization. That's uh, yeah, we've been at this a long time. Been at this a long time. Eight eight years in September. So a little over seven and a half years. It's been a Nine pleasure. Years in September, isn't it? Did we, we started in twenty twelve. I thought it was 2013. I could be wrong. Uh, it was probably 2012. Yeah, seven and a half years. Seven and a half years. Long time. It's been okay. a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, is, is there a, a, like a mathematical term for a number that's divisible by five? I feel like there should be. They've always felt like magical numbers to me. Uh, I think there isn't just because divisible by five is itself a pretty easy thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like there's like just a little symbol, there's just a little vertical pipe, if you want to say that um, something is divisible by something else. So it's, it's uh, especially if you're writing, it's expressible very concisely. And multiples of five have always made me very happy. I like if I'm like walking up or downstairs and like, I count them, and it's like a little satisfying to me if they're multiples of five. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I had like an opposite experience today. While we're not talking about poker, I got <laughs> um, a very large shipment of Ritz crackers in, and they 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 come in like vacuum sealed little freshness tubes or whatever. And it's mm-hmm. thirteen crackers to a tube. I thought it would be twelve. It's more 13. of a sleeve, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's but yeah, that's it's a, it's a baker's dozen. Yeah, baker's dozen. They're, they're so. baking you Ritz crackers and they're giving you a baker's dozen in the sleeve. Yeah, I have 72 baker's dozens of, well, now I have less than that. I have, <laughs> I have 71 baker's dozens plus plus two stray crackers. <laughs> and, uh, and my son and I have had a very happy day. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's talk about poker. Let's talk about well, poker. Let's tell people for this, this rich cracker strategy segment has been sponsored by Learn Pro Poker, Ryan LaPlante's training site. You can sign up for Learn Pro Poker and help out the podcast while you're at it by going to thinkingpoker.net slash LPP for Learn Pro Poker. Also sponsored by Range Trainer Pro which you can and should sign up for at thinkingpoker.net slash RTP for Range Trainer Pro. I can tell you that Learn Pro Poker is a great way to sharpen your poker skills if you are not uh, playing a lot of poker these days. And Range Trainer Pro is a great way to stay sharp on your uh, pre-flop ranges and also to learn proper pre-flop ranges. They have uh, packs that you can buy that will give you soft pre-flop ranges for a variety of different spots, which I find super useful when I'm trying to analyze hands to be able to use uh, like GTO range for an opponent um, just so that I'm not introducing assumptions or biases into you know because when you're analyzing a hand after the flop like assumptions you make about your opponent's pre-flop range are going to shape the post-flop results so being able to use a like gto pre-flop range that like it doesn't quite guarantee but i think it lessens the amount of um sort of bias that you're introducing into your post-flop analysis which uh, i find useful so it's one handy side benefit of uh thinkingpoker.net slash rtp yeah, it's really interesting to me. I mean, I one of my views about poker is that poker players have been much better at extending knowledge than actually learning it. Like, actually, like, there's been a lot of intellectual progress and a little bit less practical prog- progress in, in becoming proficient. Um, it's hard to get the right kind of feedback loops uh, that are tight enough in sort of weight skin terminology. And uh, so I'm, I'm very interested in apps that are more about training and less about just That's true. This is very much a drawing smaller circles or making smaller circles uh, thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is a good ad. They should pay us more for this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's make some small circles here. Let's talk about poker. This hand comes to us from Gary. 
Uh, and it's actually a follow-up. So you don't need a lot of background on this, but I did a um, strategy segment. Uh, I believe it was a solo one, uh, Nate, that uh, you were not able to join me for. Uh, there was I was just trying to offer a kind of um, like common sense or, or intuitive explanation of how to think about ICM and in particular like final table sort of spots. I mean, I think for the for the details, you really have to have a, a solver. I don't think you can get the details exactly right, just sort of intuiting it. But I think there, there's a lot of sort of broad stroke, broad strokes, intuitive things about ICM that I think people would do well to um, to understand. And one of the things that I talked about is I do think there are some scenarios where it would be correct to fold pocket aces, even just on the regular bubble of an MTT, right? Not, um, I mean, we can certainly construct final table scenarios where it would be correct. But I think if you imagine a scenario where like the average stack is say 30 big blinds and you have two big blinds and you're on like the exact bubble, but you're not very clear, you know, like maybe you have eight hands to go before your the blinds are going to hit you and there's other short stacks and stuff. Like if you're, you're basically guaranteed that you can fold into the money um, and then you're dealt pocket aces, like it's probably just correct to fold them, right? Where doubling up still doesn't really, or tripling up even doesn't really do that much for you. Um, it probably is better to just lock up the min cash. I mean, that's sort of an extreme example, but that was like what I was talking about in that strategy segment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, speaking of learning. Uh, I think a lot of people, myself included, started playing poker tournaments, over adjusted to the bubble, sort of worked hard to correct that, and then some years later, did some bubble math again, and were shocked at how yeah. much their over adjustment had been. <laughs> it's really a big deal, it turns out. Yeah, well, for a long time, there was that advice going around of, like, play to win. And there's sort of, like, a bravado behind it, too. With like, I'm not playing to cash. I'm playing to win. Yeah. And, like, I mean, you're playing to maximize money. or I mean, I guess not everyone does. Like, some people really are playing to win. But if you're if you're playing to maximize money, then, yeah, like, there are scenarios. And in many cases, playing to win is not correct if you're playing to maximize your dollar EV. Yep. So Gary says, uh, he just listened to that episode. This is episode 318, by the way, for people who are interested in this uh, conversation. Uh, Gary said, just listened to episode 318, where you spoke about the possibility of folding aces in certain ICM spots. This spot came to me two weeks ago, playing in the, uh, I guess it's Aiken Casino, the German city. Aachen. Uh, I would say Aachen. Aachen. Uh, Aachen Casino's weekly $60 deep stack tournament. 13 players left, and payout is from place 11 for $160, although it's very standard that there will be a bubble deal for $100 for place 12. Uh, so 13 players left. Uh, sounds like functionally 12 people are going to get paid, with 12th place getting $100, 11th place getting $160. Um, he didn't give us all the payouts, but I assume they grow you know, normally from there. Like, not only, yeah, yeah. If you don't agree to the payout, you get stabbed in the parking lot. So, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much, you just, uh, yeah. Kidding, kidding. I'm sure things are more orderly in Aachen. Anyway, go ahead. Uh, he says, I'm in big blind with 20 big blinds. Average stack is 45 big blinds. The hijack shoves for 22 big blinds, folds to me, and I look down at aces. At the same time, on the other table, there is a bust out, and immediately the other table is talking bubble deal. The floor man then says to wait for our table to finish play. A normal, straightforward call. Sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, yeah, I was wondering right, what the house rule is about people busting at the same time. Right. 
Um, a normal straightforward call now had me thinking, uh, should I fold to lock up an instant no risk guaranteed hundred dollars, more like $160 as I have another, as I, as I have enough chips for the next pay jump, or should I call as would be standard? I did think for 30 seconds before calling and holding against pocket queens. It has left me pondering though for the following weeks, is this correct? Also, what should I do with pocket kings, pocket queens? Queens, I think, is a clear fold due to not blocking ace-king, which is just a flip. Kings, I decided, was a call until I heard your podcast. I believe the hijack shove would be tens, uh, ace-jack plus. Not sure if this has too much relevance, though, as being ahead of range in this ICM spot should not be the determining factor. Was the AA call wrong? Surely not. Would it be correct to fold kings? What about queens? <sighs> Boy, I should have put pen to paper on this beforehand. I think aces pretty much has to be a call. Like uh, I can't imagine folding aces here. I mean, so one like one really important difference between this spot and the the hypothetical that I was talking about. You know, I deliberately gave the hero a very short stack in the hypothetical, where even if the hero does like get the money in and, and double or probably triple up with the blinds and antes, the hero would still be you know well below the average stack and like not very likely to ladder beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the value of doubling up a 22 big blind stack is significant at the final table. Like there's, you know, it, it greatly increases your chances of getting, I mean, it doesn't double your chances of getting first place, but like it greatly increases your chances of getting in first place. It greatly increases your chances of getting, you know, seventh, sixth, fifth places. Um, the, the more that you're still going to be in last place, even if you do double up, the less incentive you have to, try to double up right like if you're still going to be way behind everyone else if you double up then it's more important for you to just try to like ladder minimally um if if you can win like a significant amount of chips then it's like a bit more correct for you to to take risks and try to move a few more rungs up the ladder and maybe even be eyeing first place mm-hmm. so yeah, this is like i think very much not a spot to fold aces i do think some of the other hands are, are a bit interesting yeah, I, I would have to know more about the play, the pay structure and the blind structure and so on. I, another thing that matters is that 20 big blinds in some of these tournaments will not be 20 big blinds for long. And uh, if you're thinking about folding and like laddering and maneuvering, um, like that, that 20 can turn into five in, in an hour. <laughs> in a lot yeah, I mean, I'm assuming a $60 tournament is probably a pretty quick mm-hmm. blind structure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so not really knowing the situation, I would call probably down to queens. I think I would fold jack, so probably fold ace-king. Um, and that's that. I, I also think it matters that a lot of the hands that you might not expect him to shove, but then he might shove anyway, are things like ace-nine suited or, you know, ace-ten offsuit. And uh, aces to his pretty well against those. So... Definitely call aces. I don't know. Aces down to queens. Full jacks. Sound about right? Yeah, that sounds right to me. Um, Gary, actually, he, he said something here which I thought was interesting. Um, he said, uh, being ahead of range in this ICM spot should not be the determining factor. And, I mean, I think it's literally true that it's not a determining factor. Like, it doesn't just make the decision for you. They're like, well, I'm ahead of his range, so of course I call. Um, But, I mean, it does matter how far ahead you are. So, I mean, part of the reason why Aces is, like, definitely a call here is that it is well ahead of his shoving range. And, like, you know, that's now Kings, you're taking a much bigger risk than calling with Aces because there's, like, a whole set of hands that he's going to be shoving that has, you know, a fairly good chance of drawing out on you, as anyone who's ever played Pocket Kings knows. 
Um, so I mean, the, the the risk of elimination is much higher as soon as you have anything less than aces. But like, it still matters that you are going to be a pretty big favorite. Um, I mean, even against the like ace jack, ace queen that shoves, certainly against the pocket tens or the pocket jacks that are in his range. So I mean, it, it, I guess I would say the the degree to which you're going to be a favorite matters a good deal. Um, and then also like the frequency with which your call results in elimination matters a good deal. So like if, if, if you somehow knew, which of course you shouldn't have turned it, but if you somehow knew that your opponent had ace king, it would be correct for you to call with ace king, right? Even though you're not a favorite against his range, because the risk is extremely small, right? The risk of you getting eliminated when you get all in ace king versus ace king is uh, very tiny. And so, you know, it is correct for you to, to call in that spot, even though, like, you are taking a risk of elimination for almost no edge, because the, um, the I mean, I'm assuming it's, I haven't actually put pen to paper on this, I'm assuming it's correct to call there, because the risk of elimination is, is so small. So it's not only a question of your edge, it's also a question of, like, how often do you experience the, um, the elimination event, which is where the, like, ICM penalty kicks in. Mm-hmm. I agree. This is uh, a more extreme version of something I have talked about on those rare occasions when I talk about PLO8 tournament strategy on the air, and 12 people get really excited, and like 3,000 people <laughs> I'm one of them, to though. fresh air. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, right. so like Ace King, you know, you I think you would not want to call with Ace King here, even though you know you do expect to be a decent sized favorite against the shoving range that our hero describes, because you do block the Aces and the Kings, you dominate the Ace Jack and the Ace Queen. The problem is you're just not that big of a favorite against, um, like you're not as big of a favorite against Ace Jack or Ace Queen as you know Pocket Kings is against Pocket Tens, for instance. And um, yeah, and like you know you're you're in. The, the risk of elimination against the, the, the pairs is, is quite high. Like the frequency with which you get eliminated with ace king is much higher, I think, than the frequency with which you get eliminated with queens and the prospect of being, it's it, there's like you can't be in the same really good spots with ace king that you can be with queens. I agree. So thanks for writing, Gary, and uh, thanks for your kind words about the show. Um, he explicitly, oh, so we do have some results here. Um, and this is kind of significant to, to my point about the value of accumulating chips. He says, on a side note, winning the hand enabled me to open up my otherwise very tight play and with my tight image, run up a stack that made me chip leader for the final table. So case in point, like this is part of why it is you know, correct to call when doubling up will really do something for you. Um, even four-handed, my image was still tight, which really helped. It enabled me to increase my three-bet steal and reduce my two-bet steal frequencies. I then went on to win the tournament for $1,320 minus $50 for the bubble. Uh, this then adds a new dimension to my thinking, as I'm sure I needed that double up to play with the freedom of chips and not a scared stack. Um, this is then the argument playing to win versus ICM with results-oriented thinking sprinkled muddy, sprinkled in to muddy the waters. Oh, I just don't know. You're the experts. I'd love to hear your fantastic wisdom on this. A lot of this win. Oh, sorry, did you say something? Yeah, I was going to say congratulations. And also, people have studied ICM a lot, but probably not enough. There's less knowledge than there should be, less practical working knowledge than there should be in the world of exactly what to do in that spot. Don't congratulate him, Nate. It turns out we're the ones to whom congratulations are due. Hmm. A lot of this win I owe to you guys, and we'll be ordering the book and downloading the latest premium podcast very soon. So many spots, I'm thinking, quote, what would Andrew and Nate say? 
An example of this, uh, early in the tournament, I got bluffed and it hurt, but I had on my shoulder Andrew saying, you're supposed to get bluffed sometimes. It stopped me tilting as I repeated that line to myself about 20 times in the next hour. Thanks again for everything, Gary. Nice. Nice. I'm just going to say that, uh, you know, Gary Gary bought my son some Ritz crackers, and I didn't even know it. Thanks for the Ritz crackers, <laughs> Gary. <laughs> yes, thank you very much for the kind words, Gary. Congratulations. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, do feel free to write us podcast at thinkingpoker.net if you have a strategy question or hand you would like to hear discussed on the show. Take care. Hi, Matt. Thanks for coming back on the show. No, happy to be here. Glad to talk to you guys. I guess it was good that you got your uh, your WSOP trip in last year. Yeah, no kidding, man. That uh, Yeah, and I remember thinking as I was flying out of Vegas, I was like, well, I'm definitely coming back next year. Nothing can stop me now. <laughs> and that <Yeah>. was <laughs> a bad read. Uh, a lot could stop me. It's funny because I was actually, uh, so I'm playing in the same neighborhood uh, poker series as I was last year, and uh, I was not doing particularly well. And uh, that uh, was bumming me out. But then, um, you know, times have intervened and uh, it's still kind of up in the air about what the club is going to do about uh, the situation for Road Series Poker this year and, you know, the club next year and going forward. So I may have actually backed my way into a sort of successful exit from a, from a bad tournament series for now. But uh, we'll see. I definitely want to go back to the World Series. How good do you run? Yeah, seriously, it is. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I was still in the running, but like, I was going to have to string together some really good tournaments. And now all those tournaments have been canceled. And so I've saved the buy-ins for those for <laughs> yeah. now. There you go. Now, I've had sort of similar, um, yeah, I, I, I know that I've said in my, to, to various non-poker people, you know, who will sort of ask, well, how long do you think you can do this poker thing? I'm like, I, I really don't know, but I mean, I, I think I'll play the main event every year, like for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, this is the sort of thing you you don't anticipate. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I feel like we. Good. Uh, I was just gonna say, um, I had this conversation with uh, Ben Saxton recently when he was on the show. But I mean, I, I feel like at this point, even if they do have it in in August, I'm a pretty significant underdog to to play it. Oh yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go to the. I, I don't think I'd go to the World Series anytime this calendar year they move it to the fall or whatever it just like that's the last place i mean i i mean everyone kind of gets this but like a poker room is like the last place i want to be <laughs> anytime right. sort of the transmissible like communicable <laughs> virus is going around like i don't care what they think they can do to stop that like you just don't want to be doing it i did um i do have another streak on the line though which is i, I have not ever missed the summer at the saratoga race course since 1978 and uh that is probably going to come to an end uh, this summer, which is very sort of an odd feeling because that's like not like, oh, I'm going to the West Series Poker. It's just like where I'm from and what I've done every August um, mm-hmm. since I was born. And uh, that's a strange feeling. And uh hasn't really hit me. Like it doesn't, you know, it's not like those sorts of things are like, I don't care about the streak. It's just weird to think of this sort of thing I annually do, um, even though I don't live anywhere near there anymore. It's sort of coming to an end is sort of a weird offshoot of the pandemic. And obviously for a lot of people, World Series of Poker fits right into that. Um, what else are you going to do except spend, you know, 20 days miserable in Vegas and, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's like a that, wonderful that, misery. Like, it's like, oh, I hate being at the World Series after two and a half weeks every process, but I bet a lot of them are going to miss it this year. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure. It like You know what's interesting? Like, I've had more feelings just in the last 15 seconds listening to you say that than uh, anything about my own feelings about the World Series. Like, <laughs> you write about Saratoga in such, like, a beautiful and loving way, and, and you send those, like, pictures, and it's just, like, green and these, like, gorgeous horses you know striding by and uh yeah i don't know now i'm now that 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 one got me right in the feelings yeah it's also weird too because like i was talking to my college buddies who i usually you know i've always meet up met up with there since we moved away and uh it's like one of those things where one of them said over we were just texting and we were having like a funny conversation like people do over texting like oh man i wish we were having this conversation in saratoga right now and uh it's kind of like that paired with like seeing like Naira, the New York Racing Association, put up like you know bulletins like there probably won't be racing, but we may race with no spectators there. And it's like, wait a second, and then you're just turning like everything about Saratoga into like a Zoom OTB or something. It's just like you know, it's yeah. not a, it's not the place is about horse racing, but you know, for most people and particularly in my case, it's not really about horse racing, which makes me definitely uh, definitely bummed out about that. Although that said, like. If I have to miss Saratoga for a year, if the trade-off is that, like, the pandemic ends sooner, then I'm all for it. Yep, yep. No, but, like, I can see why turning that into Hialeah would be worse than it just, like, not happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, right. That is, so that's sort of the weirdest, I think, if you go to, like, some horse track... Or if you're in like a place in Florida that has it and you just don't really know what you're looking at. I remember the first time I saw this and you just see a TV on the wall with two men standing in a huge room like it's Tron or something throwing a ball at the wall. It really is the strangest form of gambling. I think you can happen upon <laughs> that is like regulated by the state and legitimate. <laughs> what are they doing? Yeah. It just looks like they're on a different planet. Like I'm, it's like you get warped into like Back to the Future 6 or something. And you're just like, what are they doing up there? Yeah. yeah, I mean, my favorite and one of my only experiences with this was in like the middle of Florida at one of those card rooms, and I was eating this disgusting plate of pinto beans, and it was in this like it, it felt like sort of a like a lobby of like the church I grew up with, but like it's not. It's more like just like a YMCA lobby, and somebody's like mopping the floor, and there's like this really nondescript counter, and everything is just white tile, and I have this plate I ordered very badly of just disgusting pungent beans, and then there it is, like there's the highlight on the screen, and and inevitably the two degenerates yelling at the oh my God. I know. I know. I know. I think about that. Yeah. No, every time I see someone betting on Dubai at Saratoga or whatever, 10 in the morning, I'd still think the highlight is crazier. I remember the, fir- the first time I saw highlight, I was in Florida, of course. Right. And I saw it on a TV in a place that I didn't even like sense had gambling going on at it. Like I was yeah. in Delhi at the deli or something. Right. And it's like, <laughs> what is that? And then you realize people are gambling on it. And it's like, wait a second. What are they even doing? Are they just playing the lottery? And then you realize people think they have some edge in this game. I don't know. You just go down this rabbit hole. Like, are you reading tip sheets about high lie? Like, what kind of? It seems like the whole thing is set up. I cannot believe we're on a high lie like rabbit hole here. But like, it seems like the whole thing is set up to be fixed, right? Yeah. Like individual human competitors with that can't be making much money. Like playing a game that seems indecipherable that people seem to like to gamble on in like some weird, like back rat sense. Right. Oh man. Highlight. Yeah. 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 It's all, it's, it's very Florida and it's, it's all. And like, these are definitely towns like, I don't know. Having cut my teeth at Foxwoods, I still (laughs) cannot get used to like (laughs) 
the the neighborhood sort of gambling thing like the idea that poker exists not at casinos and gambling exists not at casinos like does not does not really sit with me like i don't know it's still always surprising to me yeah i've always wanted to play poker in wyoming because yeah. as i understand it like there's no casino maybe there are casinos there now but like they have it set up so like any like bar or whatever can just have a poker table in it and so, like, it is a very sort of distributed system um, where yeah. it's sort of public but sort of private. And I've always been interested to see that in action. It's probably a lot less than what I'm picturing, like, romantically. But <laughs> I, we were we were in South Dakota this summer, and our flights got canceled because the airports in South Dakota, like, are, you know, if anything goes wrong in Chicago, you, you can't get a flight for a week or whatever. And so we had to go to Denver to get home. And uh, one of our plans, my initial plan was, like, well, let's just drive. It's, like, eight hours or whatever. We can drive through Cheyenne. I was like, we'll stop in Cheyenne. And in the back of my head, I'm like, I am going to get to see one of these poker games in the bar. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't pitch that part to my wife. I'm like, we've never been to Wyoming. Let's drive through Cheyenne. We'll have lunch in Cheyenne. It'd be great. And then, uh, and then somehow we managed to get a rerouted flight through Denver. So we ended up flying to Denver, which was fine. But I was, I was, I was very much angling to see some Wyoming poker going on. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, <laughs> you're the sort of person to whom obvious questions can be asked profitably. Yeah. In particular, you you you're good at seeing the whole field uh, in terms of cause and effect. Uh, what do you think this is going to do to poker? What do you think? Uh, tell me about the future of poker, Matt Glassman, prognosticator. Uh, you know, given the pandemic. Uh, so my initial reaction to this was that it's not going to do much at all, except like you know, cause a you know discreet pause right and then everything will ramp back up and uh i still think that's overall correct um one thing to get me pause is i was talking to a a, a bridge player i know and uh i was like so when are you gonna go back to playing face-to-face -face bridge because you know bridge is just as bad if not worse than poker for the city you're at a tighter table with people and handling cards and uh he was like well i'm not playing face-to-face -face bridge until there's a until there's a vaccine and i was like geez Right, and he's like a serious bridge player, and so that gave me some pause. But I think poker's different enough um, that my guess would be uh, three years from today, you would never have knew this happened in the poker world, except to the degree that all of society changes a little bit, such that you know maybe there's a bottle of Purell at the table or something. I, I really, I, this would have to be a lot worse in my mind to have sort of like a truly destructive effect on poker long term. Um, now, I mean, in terms of people like being scared to play or going to the casino, whether a lapse of being able to play live poker for, I don't know, even a year turns people off from the game recreationally, uh, that's a different story. I haven't seen that. Like, I, all the recreational players I know, people who play sort of like who are everything from high-end recs who like, you know, can beat the 1-2 games at the casino and play the 2-5 games, right down to people who only play like the, you know, nickel games in the neighborhoods. All of those people seem very interested in poker. In fact, I organized, you know, I organized a group on the Poker Stars home games, and I've got 35 people playing a tournament every week, just like desperate to play. Um, some of that's the pandemic, and they're bored out of their minds. Uh, but it doesn't seem to me that like that sort of basic crowd is going to be apprehensive about poker, uh, unless it turns out they're apprehensive about everything in their life. But I don't think so. I think even if people aren't shaking hands, they're still playing poker. Gambling's gambling, and people like it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that 
this somehow changes the wealth distribution in the country in a way that either makes for more or fewer people that can, you know say want to make the trip to Las Vegas and buy in. Uh, so World Series, I have no idea. I mean, that's such a that's such a small subset of the overall poker economy. Um, and I think that's one thing that people forget is like we can talk about the number of tables open at you know at, at MGM and in, in National Harbor or how many how much handle they do at the World Series, but like. I am still pretty confident that the vast majority of poker being played in America is still being played in home games. Um, and so I don't know. The World Series is such a subset of everything that uh, that I think it's probably outliers who are more interested in playing poker uh, once they deem it safe. And so I wouldn't I wouldn't expect a big change in that. I, I just I just I think, you know, it'd be one thing if this pandemic had hit in 2006 right and so the two-year period would be a period where you were seeing poker at its sort of cultural peak mm. but since it's not the cultural peak of poker and we're already kind of over that hump i don't think sort of that marginal person who like you know didn't know about poker in 2002 and then forgot about it by 2010 um i don't think that person that seems like the person you might lose in this situation uh i don't know some for some subset of the population is going to become uh, germaphobes such as they're marginally not going to take part in activities like this uh, going forward from this pandemic. They're going to like learn that lesson. But I think that's a pretty small percentage of the population um, who are willing to take it to that threshold. Uh, and I also think it's people, if you're already playing things like public card room poker, you're less likely to be in that group. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, like, I don't think, like, I mean, I honestly, I, I think it's a better question. Like, are people going to stop shaking hands in the United States going forward? Will that, like, custom go away? Oh, please. And, please. and I think that's, honestly, I think that's more likely than public cardroom poker crashing. That seems right. I really right. do. That seems do. right. That mm -hmm. seems right. Yeah. I mean, one place I'm coming from here is seeing myself not miss sports very much. This is something mm -hmm. we've talked about a little bit. <clears throat> and, yeah, I think there are going to be people who don't get poker for a while and don't miss it. And I also think there are going to be people who don't get poker for a while and really miss it. And also people who are learning poker right now. And I just have no good instinct about what's going to win there and well, what the various network effects are. I mean, I think here's one data point, and it's just one data point, and it's anecdotal. But my kids and I and my wife, we play tons of games. We always have played tons of games. We're playing more than ever right now. More yeah. than ever. And if people are looking for things to do cooped up in their house, you know, overall gaming, and by that I mean everything, the video games, the card games, the board games, all of it. Uh, if, if there's sort of like a cultural legacy of the pandemic, it's going to be sort of like people found stuff to do when they were otherwise bored and couldn't do the activities they normally would do. Mm -hmm. And so... Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Is there a resurgence in the number of boxes of Yahtzee being sold around the country? I yeah. wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't no. doubt it. Sure. And so I don't know what that does to a seven-year-old who all of a sudden is thinking about Yahtzee for three and a half months. Um, you know, who knows? Does that create more people who are like the idea of something like poker? I have no idea. But certainly it's not in a different pond. It might be in a different part of the pond, but it's all there, sort of the pieces. Um, if you can't go out and play basketball, but you can stay at home and try and get good at, oh, hell, right? Like, that's mm -hmm. probably has some sort of marginal effect going forward in your life. Yeah, probably. I, I've i wondered if this might just be the knockout blow for baseball. I've had this strong sense for years that baseball is losing 
has somehow lost its way in the American mainstream. And mm-hmm. like you see the league desperately trying to create a narrative or, or a meaning for it. And a lot of young people just don't care about it. And even a lot of pretty serious fans just, they, they, they can't sort of emotionally or even like epistemically uh, latch on to the game. And, and, the league doesn't really know what to do with that, how to market itself, how to package the product, so to speak. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure it comes back from this. I'm not sure That's it comes back from this. Yeah, I mean, could this be, will will baseball be for um, people our age what boxing was for my father's generation? It's yeah. like something that was just like an obvious Central American, you know, like a, a sport that's central to American culture. Um then yeah, it'll turn into a, a Central American sport in a different sense. Um, yeah, and- <laughs> I, I, I always think about tennis in that regard yeah. um, because I so I, I you know in the '80s tennis was like a thing in the United States, right? Oh, yeah. Like in oh, yeah. big ratings on TV, and it you know it was never in the top sort of three or four or five in sort of American sports spectator sports, but it was it was much more prevalent than it is now. Um, and but you know sport sports change and. You know, and I, I always laugh because I think if you look, the three most popular sports in the 30s were like baseball, boxing, and horse racing. Would you believe um, that I was about to say that exact thing? You probably yeah. would because you probably got it from the same place. But, yeah. but yeah, 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 but yeah, like yeah, that, yeah. But like, so sports naturally change. I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, a lot of, th- you know, baseball's, baseball's always been strange because baseball always sort of has like diehard fans in the stadium, but also as people are there basically at a picnic, essentially, Yeah, you know, just yeah. kind of shooting the shit and hanging out and enjoying the sun and, you know, in the good weather with, you know, maybe with their kids. And, uh, it's strange because I had, you know, I grew up a Yankees fan. So I went to a lot of games cause we didn't live super far from the Northern tip of Manhattan. It was only a couple hours down the road. So we'd go to a lot of games. And when I moved to DC, you know, I watched the Nats and follow, but I've become much more of like a, picnic style baseball fan i like going to a baseball game and i'm not there on the edge of my seat really caring that much i'm rooting for the nats whenever and so like those are very different fan bases which i think is interesting when you interact with sort of like the modern media environment like i don't think i'd ever go to an nfl game again and it's not just because of like the head injuries and the violence and stuff like that but it's like it's just more fun to watch at home it really yeah. is yeah. And that's a change with the HD TVs and all the replays and things like that and the internet, right? And that makes football less fun live. Um, on their hand, like it's still incredibly fun to go to a hockey game, and uh, I will never stop going to hockey games because they're just more fun in person, no matter how good the TVs get. Uh, baseball's sort of in the middle there, um, where there are things about going to a baseball stadium that just can't be reproduced on television in a way that's not true of say football. And so I think there's still going to be a crowd of people and baseball is going to hang on for a long time because everyone our age has young children and taking young children to the baseball games is still a thing it's still a thing the tickets are still way cheaper than most other sports and uh it's still a thing to do i you know it's like i don't know there's still minor league baseball parks all over the country where people are still there night after night after night and uh i don't know i, I maybe it won't be what it was but i still think people are going to baseball games yeah it's interesting given your day job you you talk a lot on Twitter about political coalitions and how you know the the person on the street often thinks that parties are united by single grand narratives and right. often the truth is more disjunctive and messier, et cetera. It's interesting to think of sports fan bases like that. It's like yeah, and and, and the dynamics of it can get very complicated. It's like if baseball is about you know, there's like 
large Hispanic engagement. Uh, then there's like old people. Then there's people who want to go to a picnic and like, <laughs> how does that evolve over time? You know, like it's, it's this disjunctive uh, fan base. What, what, what's the future look like? I don't know. I, I mean, but you know, baseball has had a lot of deaths and resurgences in our lifetime. Right. I mean, the strike was supposed to kill it in 90, 94, 95, and it didn't. And it came roaring back with the home run race. And then sort of the early 2000s was sort of a you know northeast Boston, New York kind of golden age of sort of baseball drama. And people still go to baseball games. It comes and goes. I, uh, I, would, be, I would be surprised if interest in baseball went up after the pandemic. But on the other hand, like an outdoor sport right yeah yeah and you're, not, you're not cooped up in some arena with fifteen thousand people and the air conditioning circulating the air everywhere so who knows right who knows yeah yeah and like minor league baseball oh man getting up to new hampshire will feel real good after <laughs> all this yeah that's gonna that's gonna be a nice experience uh mm-hmm. seeing, seeing some fisher cats yeah hey andrew how are you <laughs> I'm I'm good. I have, I have my share of minor league baseball experiences. I've not been to very many major league. I, I think I've probably been to more minor league than major league games. That's certainly true for uh, for hockey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's probably true for most people actually. Yeah. Minor league baseball is everywhere, and uh, not many people live near a major metropolitan area and have the money to go to a lot of those games. Where that's the, the, the minor league games five dollars. Yeah, so they, yeah. Do, they do stuff that's like oriented towards kids you know they have like the various like yep. yeah just all of it it seems yeah, yeah I, I i did my summer reading in sixth grade and i got a free ticket so i went yeah right yeah. Yeah. yeah right right and you pay the extra like four dollars and you're sitting right behind the plate or whatever that's that's the ticket it's just like i don't know like walk up to the booth and just say like give me your best ticket like if i were a scout where would i be sitting yeah, yeah. like oh those are the most expensive seats so like how much it's, it's either 20 or 25 dollars and mm-hmm. you buy it and you're sitting like four feet from like see the games i remember greg bird just about you know just about to break in and he like hit a ball like well over 400 feet to dead center uh yasmani grandal on a rehab assignment um his butt was much larger than I was expecting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it's amazing. Yeah, it's a it's a good way to spend twenty dollars. Like you know, drink tap water, skip the snacks, and and get the best seat in the house. Hey, you 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 wrote a book, Andrew. How's that going? Uh, it is going well, and it, it's funny to think. I, I kind of want to do this comparison because I know both of you guys were, were uh, Matt in particular commented on this, you know, thinking about what I was like. And you know, Matt saw me shortly before I published the the book last year, and and I was so I, probably the phrase was something like, "What a stupid fucking thing to do!" You know, "What a waste yeah. of time to write a book," uh, that kind of thing. And then you know, he, he was sort of ribbing me when I announced uh, so quickly after that I was going to be writing another one. Um, and yeah. so I wanted to be able to do a little bit more of like an A B analysis of like was it actually easier or better this time or whatever. But you know, it has been nice with the whole pandemic thing to already have this project in the works that I could just like, because I mean, I stopped going to casinos well before the casinos in, in my area closed. Um, it just it seemed like a bad deal to me. And I had a, this other way of like monetizing my time. I had this big project I was working on that like rewarded hours spent in front of a computer sitting at home. Um, so it was nice to have that to, to just sort of like slot right into But it, I mean, it, it's hard to say how I would feel about it. Um, had this been like a year more similar to last year, 
better, but I do feel like it's been overall a, an easier and more rewarding experience. Like I think I avoided a lot of the um, like first time pitfalls uh, that, that were frustrating the last time around. That said, I've not yet done the single most frustrating part, which is the formatting. I start on that tomorrow. Oh, wow. But content wise, you're close to done. Oh yeah, co- content is is finished. Um, That's amazing. I have well, Danny Sprung is is one of the people. I've I have two people who are kind of looking at a very fine. I've, I had a number of people who looked at earlier drafts to you know give me feedback on on content, but um, I've I have two people who are looking at the like very final draft for um, mostly typos. But you know if there's other stuff, there's other stuff. Um, so Danny's been been great for that. And uh, I've got his last comments. I'm waiting on the last batch of comments from one other person. And I'll have a few, you know, sm- a lot of it will literally just be like correcting typos or whatever. Um, other than that, yeah, all the, all the content is, is finished and mostly has been for a while. I've been like, making just like small tweaks to it for a while. So it's May 6th. Absent the pandemic, do you think you would have been in roughly the same boat you were last year where you were out in Vegas trying to grind the thing out? To finish, I mean, it, it seems likely uh, oh, just man. because I thought that I, mean, I really felt like I was ahead of schedule this year. <laughs> um, like last year, there was a period of about two months um, in like January, February, where I was just like discouraged or whatever. I don't even know exactly how to describe what it was, but I just like didn't touch the book for about two months last year. There was no period of time like that this year like I, i've been sort of steadily working on it and then obviously like especially the last two months has just like i've not had a whole lot else to to do where i mean actually coaching has still been um been pretty st- i've had a lot of uh coaching work to do mm-hmm. but um yeah i mean for i definitely would not have had as much time to put into it as i have and i'm also like i, I thought i might be publishing it now and it's going to be probably more like two weeks from now that mm-hmm. um that I'm, I'm publishing it. So yeah, I mean, if you attack on at least another two weeks for like time that I would have spent playing live poker and whatever else, yeah, we're probably backed up into uh, WSOP again. Do you think, um, are you annoyed that you're not going to have the WSOP to sort of market and promote it out this year? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm annoyed that I'm not going to be able to, you know, make day five again. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been sweet. Um, I, I hadn't really thought about it until you said that. So now, yes. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's a fair chance that there's more people, you know, maybe actively looking for poker books to read mm-hmm. now than, um, and that, that seems plausible to me. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's sort of like, uh, not something I can control one way or the other. So I've not, uh, not really spent a lot of brain cycles on it one way or the other. Do you feel like you're like a, a books guy now? Like, are you, is this it? You're always going to have a book project or do you feel like you've completed something with this? Um, I definitely have more ideas in my head, including one that Nate planted there. Um, and I've enjoyed, I mean, I, I like writing. I like the writing process. I feel like I'm pretty good at it already. And I feel like I'm getting better at it with every, um, every cycle of of this, I think it kind of suits my my personality and my skill set well. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could certainly see myself doing more. Uh, I think there's a yeah. fair chance of um, yeah that, that I get started on another one pretty soon after. I mean, a lot of it will depend on how long this <laughs> quarantine persists. But yeah. no, that's you know, great. I mean, if, it, if it persists for a while, awesome. then yeah, I'll probably get started on another one. 
Yeah, that's it, it, so would, awesome. it would not be another playoff poker. I think it would be something um, a little like aiming for a, a broader audience. Mm. Mm-hmm. Not not like general public, but also not. Uh, yeah, I just, just I think it's something that that more casual poker fans could also benefit from. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this is more than you want to say, but like, is there a long term play here where like if you have six books out? there's a long tail to sales and you have passive income that is, you know, significant indefinitely, or or is that more than you want to talk about? Uh, It's not more than I want to talk about. It's more than I know. (laughs) I mean, it would would certainly be nice if that were true. I I hope that that's a thing. Um, I don't know. Ask Ed Miller, I guess. (laughs) But there's a lot of confounding variables there. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, just remembering the time that this this dude walked up to you in Las Vegas and right. said hi and, and, and <laughs> turned out to be Ed Miller. <laughs> Who I had, like, had met previously. It wasn't like the first time that I met him. Like I definitely no. should have known it was him. I, I really am like awful at that kind of thing. Like I'm I'm pretty good at recognizing that I should know somebody's face. I'm very bad at like actually knowing who they are. Yeah, so, yeah. This ordinarily this time of year, I'm I'm like giving those kinds of warnings, and also the like, don't be offended if I don't want to have a meal with you in Las Vegas. This is work for me; it's not my vacation. Like I've the, the sort of like usual pre WSOP uh, speeches and and disclaimers. I'm I'm not doing. I guess I am doing them this year because I just did. <laughs> <laughs> for a trip, you're not going to take. It's like if I were there. <laughs> And you wanted me to have a meal with you, I probably wouldn't do it unless you were paying me. <laughs> Just so you know. Just so you know. Uh, now I miss it. Uh, now I miss it. It's uh, that first week. That first week. It's uh, or the last week. I I kind of prefer the last week. Um, I I think there's a sort of uh, emotional. Oh, you like that? Five better than landing in McCarran. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I'm talking well past day. I mean, like after um, what's the what's this the all in for one drop after the little one for one drop? Just like everyone is is sort of um, they're not in competitive mode anymore. You know, like in the beginning, people are like they're excited, but they're also uh, they're not vulnerable. You know, they're they're more like excited, and then. At the very end, everyone's just sort of like, oh man, you know, like I, I feel there's, there's just, there's a certain thing in the air where people are a little more uh, human. Yeah. My favorite tweet from that portion of the series is when Jamie Kerstetter tweeted, "Somebody just tried to bluff me in the first tournament after the main." Ah ha 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 ha! No. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, man. Okay, we've got Glassman on the show. What do we what do we talk to Glassman about? I, I, as a predictive matter, um, the most convincing arguments I've heard are that the pandemic helps Trump in the election. Yes, no. Uh, I uh, I think unknown. I think probably. I mean, it depends what you're talking about. Uh, there's so many aspects to tie that to the election. There's the actual virus and how many people end up dying or getting sick from it and what effect that has on the voter. 
Their second is like how did the pandemic change voter turnout and you know like have arranged the politics of the 2020 in terms of issues on the agenda and so empty. Uh, a crisis gives a president opportunity to manage a crisis well, and if a president manages a crisis well, they're going to get elected. And so I think if you previously thought Trump was in really bad shape for the election, or something he would welcome because it gives him an opportunity to you know uh, demonstrate good governance and good policy and successful leadership. Um, that said, I think Trump is probably failing on most of those counts right now. Um, I don't think he's handled the pandemic particularly well uh, as a policy matter, and I think probably even worse as a political matter. Um, that said, there's such a long way to go. I uh, One thing a lot of people are talking about is the turnout thing. It's like, well, if we have an election in the middle of a pandemic, does that change who comes out to vote? And uh, the traditional thinking on this is, and it's it's backed up by some, some research, is that non-voters generally tend to lean marginally towards Democrats. Uh, and so that if you increase the electorate kind of randomly, you get a little more tip towards Democrats. It's a lot smaller effect than most people think, but it's certainly there. Uh, and you can see this reflected in a lot of politics uh, where uh, Republicans uh, are not interested in making it easier to vote. They're interested in some cases in making it more difficult to vote. Uh, and Democrats are interested in loosening sort of requirements needed or measures needed to take the vote. And so the basic idea there is that people are scared to go vote. If those people who are scared are randomly distributed in the population, a smaller electorate probably favors Republicans. I don't think that's quite how it's going to work with the pandemic. Uh, pandemic is going to have disproportional effects on different types of people. And one of the biggest vulnerable populations is seniors. Uh, seniors tilt towards the Republicans. And so a lower turnout election because seniors are scared to vote uh, probably helps the Democrats. Again, in this very sort of Machiavellian sense, just winning an election. Uh, some of this was born true in Wisconsin, it looks like. Um, where Democrats won pretty handily in the election there, and it looked like turnout actually went in the election. People took measures. A lot of states are taking measures to make it easy, either through uh, no-excuse absentee voting or switching to mail voting. You may see more legislation on this. So I, I think it's very hard to predict how turnout effects are. I think if the pandemic gets worse and Trump is seen as competently providing policy or political leadership, I think he might as well be toast in some cases. Um, if God bid two or 3,000 deaths going on um, on, a, on, a, on a daily basis in November. I can't imagine him winning um, if the economy is down. Um, but, you know, I think it's one of those things that's uh, to put a prediction on now because the we know the things we'd want to know to make a good prediction. We just don't know what they're going to be. Um, if the pandemic ends in six weeks uh, and things are back to normal in September, like you might have a whole different issue set on the plate. Is that a likely scenario? No. Is it a possible one? Yes. So, um, I don't know. I think Trump could be doing a lot more to help himself right now. Uh, I think his handling of the policy leadership and the political leadership on this have not been good. You haven't seen a lot of direction. It cuts to one of sort of like the core things about the presidency that sometimes I have to remind people is that a lot of people are voting for like a legislator in chief. It's like, well, what do you think about abortion? And what do you think about taxes? And what do you think about health care? And that's the president I want, someone who's going to make Congress, you know, propose these policies and do them. But that's not really the job of the executive. And sort of managerial competence and governing is is much more important part of sort of being the president of the United States or being any executive, being a mayor, governor, head of a different country. And, uh, you know, that comes down to a couple of roles. One is coordinating policy responses. And the other is... Uh, gathering the political 
coalition in the public to support those policy choices. And that can be really hard in a crisis. Like, who the heck wants to go to people and be like, you know what, you can't work for the next two months, right? That's really hard. But a skillful executive is going to find the right strategic policy solutions and then find the way to sell them. Uh, people keep talking about how Trump either does or doesn't have the authority to shut down the country or do things. And, you know, it's up to the governors. And a lot of that's true. Uh, what Trump does have, though, is the biggest megaphone and the most influential individual personality in the country to informally sort of lead. Uh, and he seems uh, either incapable or unwilling to do that, um, either because he doesn't think sort of the expert policy is the best policy and he doesn't have an alternative policy to it. It's a weird situation because good policy should make good politics here. If you figure out how to minimize the pandemic, um, that should be good politics for you. Um, but he has not taken that tact. And so it's a mixed message. And he's got, you know, his CDC guidelines for when you can reopen the economy, but he undermines those constantly. And you can see sort of like partisan divisions developing. Um, and maybe he sees that as the best strategic option right now. But it's certainly not the one, if you're an executive ex-ante in a crisis, you would imagine uh, being the winning one. The winning one would be where people are united behind your skillful leadership through the crisis. And uh, we haven't seen that yet from Trump, and the public hasn't reacted that way. Got a small bump in his approval rating uh, after the pandemic started, but it was much lower than other foreign leaders and significantly lower than most governors in the United States of either party. So um, some of that might be just his support is baked in and it's stuck where it is. And you have to see which the people who don't approve of either candidate see who they vote for. And maybe it comes down to 50,000 voters in Michigan. But I get the feeling like Trump is squandering an opportunity here to really build an impenetrable coalition. What's the significance of, um, and I, I, I remember you guys discussing this on uh, your podcast, Congress Two Beers In, um, when, when there was still some debate around uh, whether or not Congress was going to uh, either try to meet remotely or yeah. not like what, what's what's the significance of people like actually being in in dc like how does how does that uh affect their ability to um to influence legislation yeah, it's it, it's a good question i i think so i think the big issue that people seem to confuse is the i was just trying to write something about this is confusing sort of the separation of the authorities in sort of our separation of power system so the president has some authorities and congress has other authorities separating those authorities into different people uh, versus the idea that the different forms actually. Um, so we could just have a, a separation of power system where like Trump is president and then like one person, Pelosi or Schumer or McConnell or whoever has sort of the legislative power, right? So we've separated into two different people who have to then compromise, right? But that's so short sort of like what makes a legislature good in terms of remote voting. That allows for the constitution, like someone can vote to uh, approve the money. Right. It's a function of Congress. Only Congress can appropriate stuff. So if you allow remote voting, then that authority piece can happen without them congregating in Washington. But what can't happen is sort of traditional legislating uh, as we think of it. And, you know, so your question is, well, what is traditional legislating that needs you to be face to face? And, you know, I think the basic idea is that a legislature is a collective decision making body that is going to, in no sense, deliberate. And I don't mean high-minded debates where they yell at each other on the floor of the house you know about issues i mean that they're actually going to be a test of different ideas that you can put in you can offer an amendment you can withhold your support until something goes a bill you can test something in committee you can try and uh move a different bill and try and gather support for it uh and the problem when you're doing this remotely is that power tends to flow to the leaders when you're not face to face it's sort of like a 
uh, resistance can't coalesce because it's isolated. But again, that gets back to the idea that the separating of powers in the Constitution is just separating two different people to look at something. Uh, and so then the question is, well, what's the value of a deliberate legislature? Because a lot of people don't believe Congress is worth anything. Uh, but this is people in my position, I think, uh, make a mistake in not sort of pitching why Congress is actually good and why having a large representative body make some portion of the decisions works well instead of having just like two executives or two kings with separate powers. Uh, and the value of the legislature is it's a diverse group of people uh, and sort of the variety of thought or the variety of types of citizens who are in the United States. But a legislature, uh, second value of a legislature is public deliberation. Uh, things done in the executive branch can be done in secret all the way through the process. Obviously, the final result has to be made public and, and made known, uh, but they can move operate without having to constantly be responding uh, to public opinion. Congress has open deliberation bill there that you can see ahead of time, uh, and before the votes are taken, the public gets to pick it apart, and representatives who don't like it can kick and scream, and uh, that's important. It's a national good. It's sort of the collective good of all these different little districts, but those little districts matter. Right, and there's people in those districts, and there's real jobs in those districts. And uh, as much as things might be in a national interest in some sense in a pandemic, there's also local interest impacts. Uh, and we see this, you know, all the time with things like localized disaster. The representatives are going to uh, the wars in California, or the floods in New Jersey, or the hurricanes in Florida, or the disasters in the Caribbean and Puerto Rico. Uh, that they get representation, and they get someone who can kick in. If you just have leaders making decisions or the president making decisions with a viewpoint uh sort of local abnormalities are not going to get their due and so these are all reasons that you might like to have a uh and remote voting sort of reduces the ability of any of those things to be brought to the fore uh you know in some in some instances i'm not sure that that's like necessarily a bad thing i mean i'm not saying it's definitely a good thing either but sort of like creative destruction has a pathway Right? And uh, it doesn't it doesn't mean that like you know if if Amazon explodes during the pandemic because it has amazing I ordered something from Amazon at one p.m. today and it was at my house at three thirty and I was just like <laughs> what is going on here it was like it was like it really was I was like you know this isn't like magic from the perspective of like me in the eighties this is like magic from the perspective of me like two years ago like yeah. I couldn't believe it it was just like they're like order within the next 10 minutes and it'll be here today. And I was like, well, that's amazing. And then it was there like two and a half hours later. I was like, what is even going on behind the scenes here? Um, but I don't think like if that service like drives out a local hardware store, for instance, like that's not maybe an ideal result, but it's also not like, that's also progress on a lot, lot of dimensions uh, of life. Um, not the least of which is sort of like consumer, uh, consumer good. So, um, you know, obviously there's a, there's a balancing act for those things. And, uh, the reason you have a representative legislature is so that local businesses can kick and scream about these sorts of things, uh, as federal policies being set. But it's also not the case that everything that accumulates sort of, uh, economies of scale and efficiencies is inherently bad. That's wrong too. I co-own a team in a fantasy, in a dynasty fantasy baseball league. Uh, I had the view that it's very, very hard to predict uh, how well various 18-year-olds will be training and, and how this will affect the careers of various 18-year-olds. And therefore, as we were trading and drafting and trading draft picks and so on, 
that we should prioritize like number of prospects we get like we should care just just really just try to stuff the roster and just get tons and tons and tons of people uh who, who wouldn't be eligible for the rule five draft for a while <laughs> um good idea bad idea well baseball is an interesting case because you know you're not really drafted on so like Potential and performance are really different for an 18-year-old in baseball in a way they really aren't in other sports. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, like, yeah, we have less signal to go on, and you've got a bunch of kids who grew another year at a time when kids are still growing. And so are, are kids drafted later or lesser known going to be more likely to be diamonds in the rough? I think for sure. Um, but, again, in baseball, it's not – I think so much that you're going to miss seeing them play their senior in high school because, you know, that's a less, that's a noisy signal anyway, because getting high school batters out isn't really what the scouts are looking at. And we can see how hard a kid can throw, even if he's not playing in a game. So I don't know. I would certainly, I I, I certainly think your strategy, I think your strategy is right. I think it's probably more true in other sports than baseball. Yeah. Uh, My sense was so much goes into development. Like, the 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 predicting the psychology of which players are going to use their time off properly or at least not completely mm. mess it up is very mm-hmm. hard and yeah, a lot of sure. what you hear about the minor leagues is like just sort of keeping the wheels on the emotional bus is mm-hmm. is hard to predict sometimes and yeah it just it just kind of you know who's going to be really good at it who's not i don't know i don't know well i mean i from what, from what I read about the minors, one issue is that if you don't have like a huge signing bonus, like if you're not one of the top prospects, they're really not going to hold your hand and keep you disciplined anyway. It's kind of going to be up to you, um, yeah. which sort of creates a self-fulfilling prophecy is that the kids who get the huge signing bonuses get a lot more care and attention and feeding. Um, so they don't go off the rails because being 19 and on the road in the minors, it's easy to go off the rails. And the people who got a $20,000 signing bonus or whatever and just thrown into rookie ball somewhere and are kind of on their own like, are more likely to go off the rails just because no one's putting the guardrails up for them. Um, yeah. And it's sort of just like the, the, the baseball clubs are just spreading the, you know, spreading the bets around to try and find sort of the gems. And if the gems don't make it on their own, they don't bother trying to cultivate them. Um, but yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't doubt that there's uh, not only – professional baseball scouts throwing their hands up right now with the current crop of things. But how about college recruiters for all sports? Um, yeah. You know, just missing, just missing these things. And it wouldn't shock me if you end up with uh, a year of, you know, college basketball prospects who end up with more players uh, producing great seasons several years down the road who were missed by the power conferences and ended up at smaller schools. Yeah. I think, the sports betting markets are going to be very interesting to follow also. Like there are some people who are going to by luck or skill have better models of how the post pandemic world works in sports. And those people are going to realize edges that have not been seen in sports betting for uh, maybe a decade. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably right. That's probably right. I mean, I don't know. It's like, is right. Is like, right. I don't, I don't even know how to even think about that except that, if you had an edge before at like mid-major college basketball betting, it's probably enhanced now when your knowledge gap may be even greater. Um, yeah, like but you're right, there might be. 
Now go ahead. Go ahead, Nate. I was going to say, like, is Alan Boston going to be the best sports handicapper in the world again? Yeah, going to be the best basketball. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, I remember once, I, it must have been years ago, I was, I was just playing, like, low-limit stud on full tilt with him, and we were just shooting the breeze. And uh, I, it was like, I want to say it was like June or something. And I jokingly said, Alan, did you start reading for college basketball yet? And I was like making a joke because I figured he started reading in like September maybe. And he's like, oh, got it on the calendar for next week. Wow. Right? Yeah, wow. he was reading. So he started reading in June for college basketball, which was like, I was like, oh, man, that's a short, short little off-season break from the end of the NCAA championship to, to, to June. Um, but it's neat, right? Like, it's cool to see, like, people, like, at least, at least uh, verbally in a chat box on a full tilt screen, like, uh, projecting that they're taking their craft pretty darn seriously. Um, yeah. And if he has a model, even if it's just sort of an intuitive model in his head, and he starts reading in June, like, he has to have an edge over the books at, yeah. you know, college basketball. Right. And, yeah. you know, I mean, obviously they defend themselves with like, you know, pretty low caps on the betting or whatever, but I don't think they can, I don't think they can beat the people who are reading in June and have a decent model on their head. Yeah. I know we've kept you for a while. I know we've kept you for a while. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I, I don't have anywhere to be and these podcasts are fun, but, um, yeah, I can do a couple know. more minutes, do a little more. Uh, so I've been grinding oh hell on uh, boardgamesarena.com uh, many days for hours at a time and uh, often with Vanessa Phelps. Oh, wow. How's that going? Um, yes, it's going good. It's, you know, she's a competitor and uh, always, you know, always was and always will be, right? And even if we're playing oh hell for just, you know, ELO rankings, right? It's really kind of cutthroat and super fun. It's funny because, like, my whole home game, is like now on board games arena grinding that routinely at various points in the day. And I'm pretty sure so is her whole home game. Um, which is interesting because there's a pretty good global group of people playing, you know, hundreds of people on, on any given day or time. But, uh, it's interesting to see who, who thinks like a, a good card player and who, who makes the kind of basic mistakes. It was funny too, because I played like, Oh, how my whole life just in home games and neighborhood games and with my family and I always wondered, like, because it's like it's pretty seriously in the home game I play in here in Virginia, we're pretty serious about it. Like, you know, people strategically thinking about the game and like writing like long missives and emails about strategies and things like that. And I always wonder, like, is this one of the toughest hell games in the world, or are we like completely deluding ourselves? <laughs> and uh, it, it's been fun. It's been fun to take the show to Board Games Arena and just play against kind of the global crowd of people who are into it. And uh, it's been enlightening because I would say that like our game was pretty darn tough. Um, most of the players in my game are now pretty high ranked on working arena, but also in like the last month, like I've learned, learned more than I think I had developed in strategically in the last like 15 or 20 years. Um, which is really cool. Cause it was really reminiscent of like online poker where like all of a sudden, if you just start grinding something online, the sort of volume you can put in and the exposure you can get to people, different strategies and different styles, um, is just amazing. And the knowledge just zooms upward and, uh, everyone in my neighborhood game agrees that we've like all gotten significantly better in just a month of doing this. Um, which is, it's pretty wild to think about. And it very much reminded me of like 
poker knowledge circa 2004 or so just exploding as people got to interact with other thinking players in a wider base and ex- just exposure to tons of hands at a time and it's it's, it's been fun um been playing a lot of bridge with my daughter I've been playing we've been playing a lot of risk too i don't know if you guys played risk growing up but my girls got all my kids birthdays for this month and they got risk was one of the games they got and i never loved risk um but uh, they've gone and sort of altered the game like significantly. You used to have to like conquer the really? world, if you remember. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, play, to, I played yeah. a ton of risk growing up. Yeah. Yeah, so did I. And you used to conquer the world, and like that was the game, like conquer the world. And now, like, you can still do that. The game board's there, but it really points you towards this deck of cards the game comes with that has secret missions on it. And it makes for like a shorter game, but like a totally unstable game. Like, your mission might be uh, uh, capture any. Uh, 24 territories or your mission might be destroy the orange army and control Africa or something like that. Um, and so it's totally different than I remember, but also sort of like newly interesting in that every person is not necessarily trying to conquer the world. They're all trying to conquer these secret missions. Um, and, uh, it does shorten the game a little bit and, uh, it's been good. It's, uh, you know, Risk is one of those games that you forget just how frustrating variants can be in the game of Risk until you're rolling those attacking dice and the defender's rolling 6-5 every time and you're just watching your armies get whittled down and your turn is just getting blown to pieces. It's like a, it's a very peculiar type of, like, uh, 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 of, of downside variance in Risk. It has, a, it has a very unique feeling of helplessness when you've got nine armies and the defender has three and you're just watching, even if you ultimately win, you're just watching your armies deplete down to like nothing. And you just realize you're just like, and you can feel sort of like the, uh, got yourself going on tilt where you're like down to like five armies and you decide not to cut your losses. You decide to press on. Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's a, it's a good game. It's a good game for teaching kids about that sort of, I mean, about sort of, uh, sort of like, uh, tactical over strategic objectives. Yeah, that's good. I, I remember like early experiences with tilt at risk, and uh, like especially, I, 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 but like I, I would tilt by like not attacking enough by just like pulling in my horns way too much. Um, mm. I mean, I'm sure I also tilted by just you know never giving up, and uh, yeah. yeah. But yeah, risk tilt. It's a real thing. It's a real thing. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, unexpectedly fun, not fun board games that you've discovered over the last month? Uh, let's see. So the best, the best Zoom game, if you want to play with other people, I, the best Zoom party game is Codenames, and I don't think it's even close. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Codename, uh, but the structure of it is it's like a word association game, but the key is that it really works best in two teams, uh, and so we would typically play like men versus women. Um, but in each round, there's two people, one from each team, would be the coders. And so if you just make that people like couples who are living together over a, or, you know, over a Zoom channel, then there's not only like no way to cheat, but the game's perfectly distributed that way. Uh, so Codenames is my number one sort of like pandemic Zoom game to play. Uh, and it's just a great game in general. I'm like, I, I can understand that it would translate well to Zoom, but I think it's just like, yeah. just a fantastic it's an amazing game. game to begin with. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think it's probably, it's probably right now my number one sort of party game for people who want to casually do like game night type things because it just, 
each individual game is quick and you know and, and it's fun for everybody and there's always something going on i i, I think it's really good um and it translates really well to a distributed network um and uh as does as does, as does um as does balderdash because there's, there's so many like app-based balderdashes uh like we were playing psych the other night which is just a phone-based balderdash so you just set up and zoom and play on your phone and uh that's good too because the the real downside of old school balderdash was that not everybody can play at once because one person has to be the dasher each round uh but with the phones you can just let the computer do that so that was really neat um and uh what did we play that was a real bust we played one that was a that was a bust last week i can't remember what it was i can't uh, i can't remember what it was um my uh my, my kids have uh, discovered the joys of uh, of um, serious monopoly, which I think turns so many people off because they have terrible childhood experiences with it. But uh, it's actually surprisingly fun if you just stick to the actual rules and make sure people aren't wasting time. And it's like the dice are always moving. Uh, the games are actually really fast and they're actually kind of strategically interesting. Um, at least enough that you not want to kill yourself as a parent playing it with kids. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I can't tell you the number of adults who like have never played with the auctions and, you know, I've never like, I've never played without sort of like bonus money on free parking or like for rolling snake eyes or whatever those things are. But if you actually play with like the strict amount of money uh, and with the auctions, when you don't buy a property, like the game actually goes quickly. Um, and uh, if you, especially if you don't dawdle, if the dice are always moving. Uh, so that's been good. My my oldest daughter is writing a program with my father-in-law, like an AI for Yahtzee, which is uh, kind of intrinsically cool to me uh, because I remember running across a book maybe 20 years ago about Advantage Yahtzee. Um, and uh, and uh, so I'm interested to see what they come up with. But So my 12-year-old is sort of, yeah, she's like edging into bridge and she's thinking about probability a lot. So Yahtzee has caught her attention and that has gotten her sisters into it. Um, and Yahtzee's definitely in the category of more fun than you remember. Um, I well, I've, I've always played a lot of Yahtzee as an adult. I think it's a great game. Yeah, yeah and, uh, I love so Yahtzee. I yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Nate, do you remember Alex Jacob hustling Yahtzee in college? I do remember that. And I mean, also his screen name for a while was Yahtzee. Like yeah, uh, I, that's one of my fondest memories of that poker room at Yale was coming in there one day and seeing Al playing some kids I didn't recognize in Yahtzee. And like, I had no idea what was going on. And I'm just like dumbfounded watching this. I'm just kind of standing, uh, I'm sitting over on those couches and then, uh, game finished up and they handed him some money and, uh, they walked away. And, uh, I was just like, I like, he walked by me and it's like, what, what the fuck? And he's just like, he's like fastest way to get the money. Fastest way to get the money. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. I mean, like a movie or something, yeah. Like advantage, but advantage Yahtzee has always stuck with me. That I, I, I don't know if it was a book or where I saw it, but I, I remember seeing it and looking at like the solution, and the solution was way too hard to memorize. Like it was very complicated. Um, but uh, yeah, so evidently, my father-in-law, and my daughter are locked into working on some sort of programming to play decent for to program a computer to play decent Yahtzee, which is a fun project in and of itself, I guess. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah. I also think, like, you don't have to be... I mean, I'm sure Alex is a very good Yahtzee player. He's a really, really <laughs> smart guy. But, like, like a lot of people, I think I think your edge at Yahtzee against a Yahtzee fish is probably pretty high. 
Like there are a lot yeah. of basics. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I'm sure there's people making incredibly simple errors. Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, there's just there's just there's just too many competing functions you have to think about that if you haven't have you haven't put some good time into either playing a lot or thinking through the logic of it, you're probably making some massive errors. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And then, so, and like, I'm, and I'm playing enough bridge right now where I'm, we're getting, my oldest daughter and I are getting yelled at the dinner table for talking about like bidding problems. Which is, that's when you know, that's when you know you're kind of there is when everyone's like, can you guys shut up? <laughs> but that's been good. That's, that's been good too. And, and the world of, uh, you know, so one thing that's amazing about playing bridge online is that one of the big problems with bridge is that you need partnerships, um, to play in real life. And if you don't have four people, you can't do it, but online you can really, uh, hone down duplicate bridge to its pure essence because you can just play yourself against three robots and duplicate that across hundreds of players. Um, and then, so everything is held constant. So you don't even have to think about the partnerships, uh, you're playing against being different. So that's a fun way to play duplicate just individually. Uh, you just play one, one of the hands and you just get compared to every other human who's playing that exact same hand against the identical robots who are going to respond to situations identically. Um, and so that's not only like really fun and you can do it no matter whether you have a partner or not, but it's a super good training tool for, uh, for someone budding into the game, like my daughter who, uh, doesn't have to sit through sort of like the laboriousness of like just playing rubber bridge at a table uh, to try and gain insight. She instantly can play hand and then she can instantly see how a hundred different people played the exact same cards and how her score compared to them, um, yeah. which is wild in terms of skill development. Like she's gotten better in the last, you know, four weeks. She had played like kind of casually before this, but in the last four weeks, she's like taking the leaps that I think take took a player, you know, a year or more uh, in the nineties to do. And certainly when I was first getting into it before there was any sort of like uh, computer aided help, which has been wild to watch. It really makes me think about like where the frontiers edges are in like, in like games like chess where I can just, I heard Jennifer Shahadi talk about this once, but just like the, just the number of reps you can put in now with the computers and with the analysis that they can give you of your moves on every hand. I, I, the, the envelope of, of how good the players are going to be is, is interesting to think about. It's also got me thinking about horse racing. Cause one thing that's true in horse racing is that they really haven't figured out how to make a horse that runs faster than like man of war could in like the, in like the thirties. Uh, but what they have figured out how to do is be able to make a lot more horses run about that fast. Um, and so they really can't push the envelope too much on the speed of a horse over, you know, uh, a mile length in the Kentucky Derby or mile eighth or whatever. Uh, but they can get a lot more horses who are a lot closer to that record. And the same thing I think is, is true in a lot of sort of these endurance and, you know, these, these pure, uh, pure sports like in swimming or, or sprinting. But I do wonder that about chess as you see more and more matches among the grandmasters head towards lots and lots of draws and more and more people capable of being in that category of people who can produce lots and lots of draws against the best players. If we are sort of like approaching something and if these training devices are, are, quickening that uh, faster than we even think it's interesting pen pen teller uh pen, pen was on uh pen Gillette, there's his name it was on yeah. brian compliment show recently mm. and talked about how he was a street performer for a while 
and when he was juggling, he had like his carefully guarded secrets, and he and his buddies, he thinks, must have been among the very, very best jugglers in the world, right? And of course, like, mm. you know, I mean, evaluate that claim as you will, you know, like, right. make whatever you will of that. But like, the interesting thing is he says that there are now many 13-year-olds who are as good as that. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing with the, yeah, the access to just a wider variety of information. I was thinking about this with, like, uh, kids learning to play, like, guitar riffs when they're, when they're 12 or 13 uh, and just starting bands, right? Like, if you're trying to do that in 1990, you either had to, like find someone who knew how to play the song already and have them teach you or be able to do it off your ear off the radio. Uh, and now there's like for every rock song that you've ever heard of, there's six different YouTube lessons about how to play it on your guitar. Yeah. Um, and so unlocking sort of like the, 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 the secrets to those sorts of things or the, just the things that create the Eurekas, you don't have to like trial and error them out in any sense. There's someone ready to show you like exactly what you would have spent a couple hours on trying to work out um, on your own. Uh, and that's amazing efficiency gain. Uh, but it also does sort of like, it is it's almost terrifying in, in some respects. Um, but yeah, I mean, just the, I, my kids are always, um, you know, always like their first reaction is no different than adults reaction now is to like, use the internet to get some esoteric piece of knowledge or to learn how to do something. And like, I've conditioned myself that too, but I can remember what it was like when you couldn't do that and they don't even have, they don't have a clue, which is no, you know, that's just, that's just how you do it. And if you're not yeah. doing that, um, you're falling behind, which is probably the more sort of like consequential side of the equation. Um, is that if you can't, uh, take advantage of that knowledge, like, at what point do you become like, like a zero marginal value worker in sort of like the market? <laughs> yeah. 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 Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah it makes me wonder what poker is going to look like. I mean, we could see some really <laughs> good poker players. We could see some really good poker players in a year. Um, yeah. Who knows? I mean, but as you said, poker's had that kind of feedback loop for a while. I don't know what the tools are. Um, Maybe there's stuff we don't even know about. <sighs> yeah, yeah, I know it's, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I don't. Yeah, it's it's hard to. So it's like, it's hard to know, like, if there's another, like, plateau to sort of bring to bear, sort of, the technological advances on poker again. You know. Um, have you seen, have, have you ever, have you looked into sort of like the computers that, I don't think they solved Go, but have made the huge advances in Go? No, I've read about it, but that's it. Yeah. Like I just read, I was, you know, I've read about it. It's like, man, that, that when they finally like, you know, fixed up the, I don't know if it's a neural net or what algorithm they use or whatever training tool they use to, to make the, the super Go computer. Like the, the amount the computer's winning by is like, significantly bigger than they even figured sort of like the, the, the God mode player would be able to beat the grandmasters by. So like you never even know what that space looks like in that sense. I think they have a better sense in poker. Like they can, you can sort of estimate better what optimal play is worth. Um, but maybe not. Right. Like, and I, same thing in same, same thing in same thing in bridge. Um, we don't even know kind of like go like what, like, 
a perfect bidding structure, how much of an edge that would give you um, over opponents in sort of like a duplicate game. So I don't know. I yeah, exciting. It's exciting now. And I, my my daughter was asking me like, she's like, she said she's like, have they solved chess? And I was like, no, they haven't solved chess. She's like, when are they going to solve it? I'm like, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> but like, I <laughs> I do think like, you know, like the day's coming, right? It's coming. And uh, it's going to be weird when sort of like the, oh, that's a game that we've picked up that we've been playing a ton of. It's just, just old school backgammon. And, ah, it's uh, a great game. Yeah, and that's like, that's just masterful because, uh, you know, playing, playing backgammon with a Dublin cube is like just so wonderful. So, so wonderful. And, uh, you know, that's a game I think a lot of people just forgot about um, yeah. or never knew about, right? It's like such a great, it's such a great game just to play for fun on an afternoon with somebody. It's also a great game to gamble on. Yeah. And uh, I'm amazed that, uh, I'm amazed that uh, more, obviously there's a connection, like, you know, at the, at the clubs in New York between backgammon and development of poker. Um, but I'm amazed that more poker players aren't interested in, in backgammon, um, especially because like, it's not, uh, it's not like a laborious long game, you know, it's just quick game after game after game after game and, uh, has such a great, uh, combination of, of, uh, of, of luck and skill, just like poker. Yeah. I mean, I've, I think I've gone on a Twitter rant about this. Like, I think there are other things like the Dublin cube, I think is underrated as a gambling device and some unplayable oh, games yeah. become playable. If, if you add a gambling mm-hmm. cube to the, or if you had a Dublin cube to them and I would like to see that generally adopted as an instrument of gambling, like as, as natural as laying odds is. Um, but yes. you know, that's the future I uh, want to and see. Just, and man, nothing, nothing it bo- boils off this like basic tilt as like being in a position back end and having my like 10 year old gently pick up the doubling cube and hold it in front of my face. Like, <laughs> like that moment where you're just like, it's like, you know what? I should surrender here, but you know, screw this little girl, right? Like accept, right? And it's, <laughs> just have the, it's like no, I as I don't care. I'll, I'll just roll a bunch of doubles and work, fight my way out of this one. Um, yeah, no, it's wonderful. Uh, it's definitely, uh, and I'm, I'm not like I have no sort of like I, I've never even done like the the basic backgammon reading. Um, I've just always played as like a you know very casual kitchen table player. Uh, but yeah, it does surprise me that 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 uh, among sort of like the traditional. Game, you know, if you think about like Go and chess and bridge and backgammon and things like that, I'm surprised more poker players aren't drawn to backgammon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes a lot of study, and yeah, it's, it, it is funny. It is funny. I I don't have a good explanation. Um, well, yeah, it's like I mean, it's like I guess like it's like why? I mean, I mean, I guess there's obviously like just like the frictionless reasons, like why open face Chinese versus backgammon, right? Like, what's, you know, I mean, like, why would one be like this sort of like high roller gambling appeal while the other is just kind of languishing there on the side? And maybe it's because mm, high level backgammon has been analyzed and studied. And so it's just not a place to find sort of like the natural unknowns that can produce sort of like beliefs of edges. Um, but I don't know. It seems, it doesn't seem like wholly different in some senses. Yeah. 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 And it seems like the existence of Snowy, the, the backgammon Snowy, would would make right. it a bad idea to be wagering the kinds of sums that are getting wagered on uh, Chinese uh, apps 
Yeah, no, to, to be doing that on right. backgammon with someone over the phone. I mean, that's. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, I don't necessarily mean. Yeah, I don't necessarily mean like in a pandemic like situation where you're distributed. Why aren't they playing backgammon? I just mean generally, right? Um, you know, gamblers like to gamble, and like, man, I'd really rather be playing backgammon than sitting there playing gin for like twenty dollars a point or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, the edges are also like huge. You, you definitely hear people say that, you know, they felt like it was a game of skill, but then they played their whole childhood and never beat their father, et cetera. So. Right. Right. Or it feels like a game of luck, excuse me. That's, uh... Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, pleasure as always, Matt. Anything else you want to tell? Yeah, no, it was great. Uh, anything yeah. you want to uh, tell, tell our listeners? Anything you want to plug? No, not right now. I'm uh, I've become sort of like a headmaster at a homeschool, so I've not been writing much. I'm trying to get back into it. Um, uh, you know, I told I said luckily before that like you know no one's lost their job, no one's sick, but uh, and like I work at like a university, so like it's just essentially closed right now. Uh, but man, like running a school for three kids is a lot of work, and I have like I grew up in like a family of teachers, and I still have a newfound respect for elementary school teachers. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, I've lived with them and for years. And so it's, uh, that, that's definitely been an eye opener for me, but, uh, nope, nothing, nothing to plug right now. I'm trying to get back into the swing of public writing and, and I'll be there soon, but, uh, nothing now. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, it was good talking to you. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Good talking to you guys too. Take care. Yeah. yeah pleasure as always. Th- thank you very much. Yep. yep. Bye. Bye. of a car of the fair passage of a bill and who will sign us into law I know you won't you won't you won't you won't will you you won't you won't you won't you won't will you you won't you won't you won't you won't you won't sign us I dropped it up a beautiful contract You've reached Matt Glassman. Uh, please leave a message, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thank you. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. <laughs> <laughs>